0: section 34 of memoirs of the court of queen elizabeth this librivox recording is in the public domain memoirs of the court of queen elizabeth volumes 1 and 2 by lucy aiken chapter 21 1587 and 1588 part 1 it is well deserving of remark that the strongest and most extraordinary act of the whole administration of elizabeth that which brought the blood of a sister queen upon her head and indelible reproach upon her memory appears to have been productive of scarcely any assignable political effect. It changed her relations with no foreign power. It altered very little the state of parties at home. It recommended no new adviser to her favour. It occasioned the displacement of Davison alone. She may appear, it is true, to have obtained by this stroke an immunity from that long series of dark conspiracies by which, during so many years, she had been disquieted and endangered. To deliver the Queen of Scots was an object for which many men had been willing to risk their lives but none were found desperate or chivalrous enough to run the same hazard in order to avenge her. But the recent detection of Babington and his associates, and the rigorous justice executed upon them, was likely, even without the death of Mary, to have deterred from the speedy repetition of similar practices, and a crisis was now approaching fitted to suspend the machinations of faction, to check the operation even of religious bigotry, and to unite all hearts in the love, all hands in the protection of their native soil. Philip of Spain, though he purposely avoided as yet a declaration of war, was known to be intently occupied upon the means of taking signal vengeance on the Queen of England for all the acts of hostility on her part, which he thought himself entitled to complain. Already in the summer of 1587 the ports of Spain and Portugal had begun to be thronged with vessels of various sorts and every size, destined to compose that terrible armada from which nothing less than the complete subjugation of England was anticipated. Already had the Pope showered down his benedictions on the holy enterprise, and by a bull declaring the throne of the chismatic princess forfeited to the first occupant, made way for the pretensions of Philip, who claimed it as the true heir of the House of Lancaster. But Elizabeth was not of a temper so timid or so supine as to suffer these preparations to advance without interruption. She ordered Drake to sail immediately for the coast of Spain, and put in practice against her enemy every possible mode of injury and annoyance to the four great ships which she allotted to him for this service the english merchants instigated by the hopes of plunder cheerfully added twenty-six more of different sizes and with this force the daring leader steered for the port of cadiz where a richly laden fleet lay ready to sail for lisbon the final rendezvous for the whole armada by the impetuosity of his attack he compelled six galleys which defended the mouth of the harbour to seek shelter under its batteries and having thus forced an entrance he took burned and destroyed about one hundred store-ships and two galleons of superior size this done he returned to cape st vincent then took three castles and destroying as he proceeded everything that came in his way even to the fishing-boats and nets he endeavored to provoke the spanish admiral to come out and give him battle off the mouth of the tagus but the marquis of santa croce deemed it prudent to suffer him to pillage the coast without molestation having fully effected this object he made sail for the azores where the capture of a bulky carrack returning from India amply indemnified the merchants for all the expenses of the expedition, and enriched the admiral and his crews. Drake returned to England in a kind of triumph, boasting that he had, quote, singed the whiskers, end quote, of the King of Spain. Nor was his vaunt unfounded. The destruction of the store-ships, and the havoc committed by him on the magazines of every kind, was a mischief so great, and for the present so irreparable, that it crippled the whole design, and compelled Philip to defer for no less than a year the sailing of his invincible armada. The respite thus procured was diligently improved by Elizabeth, for the completion of her plans of defence against the hour of trial, which she still anticipated. The interval seems to afford a fit occasion for the relation of some incidents of a more private nature, but interesting as illustrative of the manners and practices of the age. It has been already mentioned that the secret marriage of the Earl of Hertford with Lady Catherine Grey notwithstanding the sentence of nullity which the queen had caused to be so precipitately pronounced and the punishment which she had tyrannically inflicted on the parties had at length been duly established by a legal decision in which her majesty was compelled to acquiesce the eldest son of the earl assumed in consequence his father's second title of lord beauchamp and became undoubted heir to all the claims of the suffolk line about the year fifteen eighty five this young nobleman married unknown to his father a daughter of sir richard rogers of bryanston a gentleman of ancient family, whose son had already been permitted to intermarry with a daughter of the house of Seymour. It might have been hoped that the Earl of Hertford, from his own long and unmerited sufferings on a similar account, would have learned such a lesson of indulgence towards the affections of his children, that a match of greater disparity might have received from him a ready forgiveness. But he inherited, it seems, too much of the unfeeling haughtiness of his high-born mother, and in the fury of his resentment on discovery of this connection of his sons, he made no scruple of separating by force the young couple, in direct defiance of the sacred tie which bound them to each other. Lord Beauchamp bore in the beginning this arbitrary treatment with a dutiful submission, by which he flattered himself that the heart of his father must sooner or later be touched, but at length, finding all entreaties vain, and seeing reason to believe that a settled plan was entertained by the Earl of estranging him for ever from his wife, he broke on a sudden from the solitary mansion which had been assigned him as his place of abode, or of banishment and was hastening to London to throw himself at the feet of Her Majesty and beseech her interposition, when a servant of his father's overtook and forcibly detained him. Well aware that his nearness to the Crown must have rendered peculiarly offensive to the Queen what she would regard as his presumption in marrying without her knowledge and consent, he at first suspected Her Majesty as the author of this attack on his liberty. But being soon informed of her declaration, quote, that he was no prisoner of hers and the man had acted without warrant, end quote, he addressed to Lord Burleigh an earnest petition for redress. In this remarkable piece, after a statement of his case, he begs to submit himself by the Lord Treasurer's means to the Queen and Council, hoping that they will grant him the benefit of the laws of the realm, that it would please his lordship to send for him by his warrant, and that he might not be injured by his father's men, though hardly dealt with by himself. Such were the lengths to which, in this age, a parent could venture to proceed against his child and such the measures which it was then necessary to take in order to obtain the protection of the laws it is not stated whether lord beauchamp was at this time a minor but if so he probably made application to burley as master of the wards apparently his representations were not without effect for he procured in the end both a reunion with his wife and a reconciliation with his father the grandmother of this young nobleman anne duchess dowager of somerset died at a great age in 1587 Maternally descended from the Plantagenets, and elevated by marriage to the highest rank of English nobility, she perhaps gloried in the character of being the proudest woman of her day. It has often been repeated that her repugnance to yield precedence to Queen Catherine Parr, when remarried to the younger brother of her husband, was the first occasion of that division in the house of Seymour, by which Northumberland succeeded in working its overthrow. In the misfortune to which she had thus contributed, the Duchess largely shared. When the protector was committed to the tower, She also was carried thither amid the insults of the people, to whom her arrogance had rendered her odious, and rigorous examinations and an imprisonment of considerable duration here awaited her. She saw her husband stripped of power and reputation, convicted of felony, and led by his enemies to an ignominious death. And what to a woman of her temper was perhaps a still severer trial, she beheld her son, that son for whose aggrandizement she had without remorse urged her weak husband to strip of his birthright, his own eldest-born dispossessed in his turn of title and estates, and reduced by an act of forfeiture to the humble level of a private gentleman. Her remarriage to an obscure person of the name of Newdigate may prove either that ambition was not the only inordinate affection to which the disposition of the Duchess was subject, or that she was now reduced to seek safety and in insignificance. During the reign of Mary no favor beyond an unmolested obscurity was to be expected by the Protestant House of Seymour but it was one of the earliest acts of Elizabeth generously to restore to Edward Seymour the whole of the protector's confiscated estates not previously granted to his elder half-brother, and with them the title of Earl of Hertford, the highest which his father had received from Henry the Eighth, and that with which he ought to have rested content. Still no door was opened for the return of the Duchess of Somerset to power or favour. Elizabeth never ceasing to behold in this haughty woman both the deadly enemy of Admiral Seymour, that Seymour who was the first to touch her youthful heart, and whose pretensions to her hand had precipitated his ruin, and that rigid censor of her early levities, who, dressed in a brief authority, had once dared to assume over her a kind of superiority, which she had treated at the time with disdain, and apparently continued to recollect with bitterness. It appears from a letter in which the Duchess earnestly implores the intercession of Cecil, in behalf of her son, when under confinement on account of his marriage, that she was at the time of writing it excluded from the royal presence, and it was nine whole years before all the interest she could make, all the solicitations which she compelled herself to use towards persons whom she could once have commanded at her pleasure, proved effectual in procuring his release. The vast wealth which she had amassed must still, however, have maintained her ascendancy over her own family and numerous dependents, though with its final disposal Her Majesty evinced a strong disposition to intermeddle learning that she had appointed her eldest son sole executor to the prejudice of his brother sir henry seymour whom she did not love the queen sent a gentleman to expostulate with her and urge her strongly to change this disposition the aged duchess after long refusal agreed at length to comply with the royal wish but this promise she omitted to fulfil and some obstruction was in consequence given to the execution of her last will we possess a large inventory of her jewels and valuables among which are enumerated two pieces of unicorn's horn an article highly valued in that day from its supposed efficacy as an antidote or a test for poisons the extreme smallness of her bequests for charitable purposes was justly remarked as a strong indication of a harsh and unfeeling disposition in an age when similar benefactions formed almost the sole resource of the sick and needy in this year lord chancellor bromley died and it should appear that there was at the time no other lawyer of eminence who had the good fortune to stand high in the favor of the queen and her counsellors for we are told that she had it in contemplation to appoint as his successor the earl of rutland a nobleman in the thirtieth year of his age distinguished indeed among the courtiers for his proficiency in elegant literature and his knowledge of the laws of his country but known to the public only in the capacity of a colonel of foot in the bloodless campaign of the earl of sussex against the northern rebels How far this young man might have been qualified to do honour to so extraordinary a choice remains a matter of conjecture, his lordship being carried off by a sudden illness within a week of Bromley himself, after which Her Majesty thought proper to invest with this high office Sir Christopher Hatton, her vice-chamberlain. This was a nomination scarcely less mortifying to lawyers than that of the Earl of Rutland. Hatton's abode at one of the inns of court had been so short as scarcely to entitle him to a professional character and since his fine dancing had recommended him to the favor of her majesty he had entirely abandoned his legal pursuits for the life and the hopes of a courtier it is asserted that his enemies promoted his appointment with more zeal than his friends in the confident expectation of seeing him disgrace himself what may be regarded as more certain is that he was so disquieted by intimations of the queen's repenting of her choice that he tendered to her his resignation before he entered on the duties of his office and that in the beginning of his career the sergeants refused to plead before him but he soon found means both to vanquish their repugnance and to establish in the public mind an opinion of his integrity and sufficiency which served to redeem his sovereign from the censure or ridicule to which this extraordinary choice seemed likely to expose her he had the wisdom to avail himself in all cases of peculiar difficulty of the advice of two learned sergeants in other matters he might reasonably regard his own prudence and good sense as competent guides In fact, it was only since the Reformation that this great office had begun to be filled by common-law lawyers. Before this period it was usually exercised by some ecclesiastic who was also a civilian, and instances were not rare of the seals having been held in commission by noblemen during considerable intervals. Facts which, in justice to Hatton and to Elizabeth, ought on this occasion to be kept in mind. The pride of Leicester had been deeply wounded by the circumstances of that forced return from Holland which, notwithstanding all his artful endeavours to colour it to the world was perfectly understood at court as a disgraceful recall the queen in the first emotions of indignation and disappointment called forth by his ill success had in public made use of expressions respecting his conduct of which he well knew that the effect could only be obviated by some mark of favour equally public and he spared no labour for the accomplishment of this object by an extraordinary exertion of that influence over her majesty's affections which enabled him to hold her judgment in lasting captivity he was at length successful and the honorable and lucrative place of chief justice and heir of all the forests south of trent was bestowed upon him early in fifteen eighty seven so far was well but he disdained to rest satisfied with less than the restitution of that supreme command over the dutch provinces which had flattered his vanity with a title never borne by englishmen before that of excellence his usual arts prevailed in this instance likewise by means of the authority which he had surreptitiously reserved to himself he held the governors of towns and forts in holland in complete dependence whilst his solemn ostentation of religion had secured the zealous attachment of the protestant clergy an order which then exerted an important influence over public opinion It had thus been in his power to raise a strong faction in the country, through the instrumentality of which he raised such impediments to the measures of administration, that the States General saw themselves at length compelled, as the smaller of two evils, to solicit the Queen for his return. It was a considerable time before she could be brought to sanction a step of which her sagest counsellors, secretly hostile to Leicester, laboured to demonstrate the entire inexpediency. The affairs of Holland suffered at once by the dissensions which the malice of Leicester had sown and by the long irresolution of elizabeth and she at length sent over lord buckhurst to make inquiry into some measures of the states which had given her umbrage and to report upon the whole matter the sagacious and upright statesman was soon satisfied where the blame ought to rest and he suggested a plan for the government of the country which excluded the idea of leicester's return but the intrigues of the favorite finally prevailed and he was authorized in june fifteen eighty seven to resume a station of which he had proved himself equally incapable and unworthy having previously been further gratified by Her Majesty with the office of Lord High Steward, and with permission to resign that of Master of the Horse to his stepson, the Earl of Essex. But fortune disdained a smile upon his arms, and his failure in an attempt to raise the siege of Slash produced such an exasperation of his former quarrel with the States, that in the month of November the Queen found herself compelled to supersede him, appointing the brave Lord Willoughby Captain-General in his place. On his return to England, Leicester found Lord Buckhurst preparing against him a charge of malversation in Holland, and he received a summons to justify himself before the Privy Council. But he better consulted his safety by flying for protection to the footstool of the throne. The Queen, touched by his expressions of humility and sorrow, and his earnest entreaties, quote, that she would not receive with disgrace on his return him whom she had sent forth with honour, nor bring down alive to the grave one whom her former goodness had raised from the dust, consented once again to receive him into wanted favour. Nor was this all, for on the day when he was expected to give in his answer before the council, he appeared in his place, and by a triumphant appeal to Her Majesty, whose secret orders limited, as he asserted, his public commission, baffled at once the hopes of his enemies and the claims of public justice. What was still more gross, he was suffered to succeed in procuring a censure to be passed upon Lord Buckhurst, who continued in disgrace for the nine remaining months of Leicester's life, during which a royal command restrained him within his house. Elizabeth must in this instance have known her own injustice even while she was committing it, but by the loyal and chivalrous nobility who knelt before the footstool of the maiden queen, quote, her buffets and rewards were taken with equal thanks, end quote, and Abbott, the chaplain of Lord Buckers, has recorded of his patron that, quote, so obsequious was he to this command, that in all the time he never would endure, openly or secretly, by day or night, to see either wife or child, end quote. He had his reward, for no sooner was the queen restored to liberty by the death of her imperious favorite than she released her kinsman, honored him with the garter, procured two years after his election to the chancellorship of the University of Oxford, and finally appointed him Burleigh's successor in the honorable and lucrative post of Lord Treasurer. During the unavoidable delay which the expedition of Drake had brought to the designs of Philip II, the Prince of Parma had by his master's directions been endeavouring to amuse the vigilance of Elizabeth with overtures of negotiation. The Queen, at the request of the Prince, sent plenipotentiaries to treat with him in Flanders, and though the Hollanders absolutely refused to enter into the treaty, they proceeded with apparent earnestness in the task of settling preliminaries. Some writers maintain that there was from the beginning as little sincerity on one side as on the other, to gain time for the preparations of attack or defence being the sole object of both parties in these manoeuvres yet the cautious and pacific character of the policy of elizabeth and the secret dread which she had ever entertained of a serious contest with the power of spain seemed to render it more probable that the wish and hope of an accommodation was at first on her side real and that the fears of the states that their interests might become the sacrifice must have been by no means destitute of foundation leicester is said to have had the merit of first opening the eyes of his sovereign to the fraudulent conduct of the prince of parma who in fact was furnished with no powers to treat and to have earned for himself by this discovery the restoration of her favor in march fifteen eighty eight these conferences broke off abruptly it was impossible for either party longer to deceive or to act the being deceived for all europe now rang with the mighty preparations of king philip for the conquest of england preparations which occupied the whole of his vast though disjointed empire from the flemish provinces which still owned his yoke to the distant ports of sicily and naples the spirit of the english people rose with the emergency All ranks and orders vied with each other in an eager devotedness to the sacred cause of national independence. The rich poured forth their treasures with unsparing hand. The chivalrous and young rushed on board ships of their own equipment, a band of generous volunteers. The poor demanded arms to exterminate every invader who should set foot on English ground, while the clergy animated their audience against the Pope and the Spaniard, and invoked a blessing on the holy warfare of their fellow-citizens. Elizabeth, casting aside all her weaknesses, showed herself worthy to be the queen and heroine of such a people her prudence her vigilance her presence of mind which failed not for a moment inspired unbounded confidence while her cheerful countenance and spirited demeanour breathed hope and courage and alacrity into the coldest bosoms never did a sovereign enter upon a great and awful contest with a more strenuous resolution to fulfil all duties to confront all perils never did a people repay with such ardour of gratitude such enthusiasm of attachment the noblest virtues of a prince the best troops of the country were at this time absent in flanders and there was no standing army except the queen's guard and the garrisons kept in a few forts on the coast or the scottish border the royal navy was extremely small and the revenues of the crown totally inadequate to the effort of raising it to anything approaching a parity with the fleets of spain the queen possessed not a single ally on the continent capable of affording her aid she doubted the fidelity of the king of scots to her interests and a formidable mass of disaffection was believed to subsist among her own subjects of the Catholic communion. It was on the spontaneous efforts of individuals that the whole safety of the country at this momentous crisis was left dependent. If these failed, England was lost. But in such a cause, at such a juncture, they could not fail. And the first appeal made by government to the patriotism of the people was answered with that spirit in which a nation is invincible a message was sent by the privy council to inquire of the corporation of london what the city would be willing to undertake for the public service the corporation requested to be informed what the council might judge requisite in such a case fifteen ships and five thousand men was the answer two days after the city humbly entreated the council in sign of their perfect love and loyalty to prince and country to accept ten thousand men and thirty ships amply furnished and adds the chronicler even as London, London London-like, gave precedent, the whole kingdom kept true rank and equipage. At this time, the able-bodied men in the capital between the ages of eighteen and sixty amounted to no more than seventeen thousand eighty-three. Without entering into further detail respecting the particular contributions of different towns or districts to the common defence, it is sufficient to remark that every sinew was strained, And that little was left to the charge of government but the task of arranging and applying the abundant succours furnished by the zeal of the country one trait of the times however it is essential to commemorate terror is perhaps the most merciless of all sentiments and that which is least restrained either by shame or a sense of justice and under this debasing influence some of the queen's advisers did not hesitate to suggest That in a crisis so desperate she ought to consult her own safety and that of the country, by seeking pretext to take away the lives of some of the leading Catholics. They cited in support of this atrocious proposal the example of Henry VIII, her father, who before his departure for the French wars, had without scruple brought to the block his own cousin the Marquis of Exeter and several others, whose chief crime was their attachment to the ancient faith, and their enjoying a degree of popularity which might enable them to raise commotions in his absence elizabeth rejected with horror these suggestions of cowardice and cruelty at the same time that she omitted no measures of precaution which she regarded as justifiable the existing laws against priests and seminary men were enforced with vigilance and severity all popish recusants were placed under close inspection and a considerable number of those accounted most formidable were placed under safe custody in wisbeach castle to these gentlemen however the queen caused it to be intimated that the step which she had taken was principally designed for their protection since it was greatly to be apprehended that in the event of landing of the spaniards the roman catholics might become the victims of some ebullition of popular fury which it would not then be in the power of government to repress this lenient proceeding on the part of her majesty was productive of the best effects the catholics who remained at liberty became earnest to prove themselves possessed of that spirit of patriotism and loyalty for which she had given them credit some entered the ranks as volunteers others armed and encouraged their tenantry and dependents for the defence of their country several even fitted out vessels at their own expense and entrusted the command of them to protestant officers on whom the government could entirely rely after the defeat of the armada the prisoners at wisbeach castle having signed the submission required by law of such as had offended in hearing mass and absenting themselves from church petitioned the privy council for their liberty but a bond for good behavior being further demanded of them with the condition of being obedient to such orders as six members of the privy council should write down respecting them they refused to comply with such terms of enlargement and remained in custody as the submission which they had tendered voluntarily was in terms apparently no less strong than the bond which they refused it was conjectured that the former peace had been drawn up by their ghostly fathers with some private equivocation or mental reservation a suspicion which received strong confirmation from the characters and subsequent conduct of some of these persons, the most noted fanatics certainly of their party, and amongst whom we read the names of Talbot, Catsby, and Tresham, afterwards principal conspirators in the detestable gunpowder plot. The ships equipped by the nobility and gentry to combat the armada amounted in the whole to forty-three, and it was on board these vessels that young men of the noblest blood and highest hopes now made their first assay in arms. In this number may be distinguished George Clifford, third Earl of Cumberland, one of the most remarkable, if not the greatest, characters of the reign of Elizabeth. The illustrious race of Clifford takes origin from William, Duke of Normandy. In a later age its blood was mingled with that of the Plantagenets by the intermarriage of the seventh lord de Clifford, and a daughter of the celebrated Hotspur by Elizabeth his wife, whose father was Edward Mortimer, Earl of March. Notwithstanding this alliance with the House of York, two successive lords to Clifford were slain in the civil wars fighting strenuously on the Lancastrian side. It was to the younger of these, whose sanguinary spirit gained him the surname of the Butcher, that the barbarous murder of the young Earl of Rutland was popularly imputed. And a well-founded dread of the vengeance of the Yorkists caused his widow to conceal his son and heir under the lowly disguise of a shepherd boy, in which condition he grew up among the fells of Westmoreland totally illiterate. And probably unsuspicious of his origin at the end of five-and-twenty years the restoration of the line of lancaster in the person of henry the seventh restored to lord de clifford the name rank and large possessions of his ancestors but the peasant noble preferred through life that rustic obscurity in which his character had been formed and his habits fixed to the splendours of a court or the turmoils of ambition he kept aloof from the capital and it was only on the field of Flodden, to which he led in person his hardy tenantry, that this de Clifford exhibited some sparks of the warlike fire inherent in his race. His successor, by qualities very different from the homely virtues which had obtained for his father, among his tenantry and neighbors the surname of the good, recommended himself to the special favor of Henry the Eighth, who created him Earl of Cumberland, and matched his heir to his own niece, Lady Eleanor Brandon. The sole fruit of this illustrious alliance, which involved the earl in an almost ruinous course of expense, was a daughter, who afterwards became the mother of Ferdinando, Earl of Derby, a nobleman whose mysterious and untimely fate remains to be hereafter related. By a second and better assorted marriage the Earl of Cumberland became the father of George, his successor, our present subject, who proved the most remarkable of this distinguished family the death of his father during his childhood had brought him under wardship to the queen and by her command he was sent to pursue his studies at peterhouse cambridge under whitgift afterwards primate here he applied himself with ardor to the mathematics and it was apparently the bent of his genius towards these studies which first caused him to turn his attention to nautical matters an enterprising spirit and a turn for all the fashionable profusions of the day which speedily plunged him in pecuniary embarrassments added incitements to his activity in these pursuits and, in fifteen eighty six he fitted out three ships and a pinnace to cruise against the Spaniards and plunder their settlements. It appears extraordinary that he did not assume in person the command of his little squadron, but combats and triumphs, perhaps still more glorious in his estimation, awaited him on the smoother element of the court End of section thirty four